Alfred Darlington. And mm -hmm. Alfred is somebody that I know through coffee. I've served him a gazillion espressos. Uh, many of you might know him uh, by the name Daedalus, uh, which is the pseudonym that he creates music under. And so uh, I wanted to talk to Alfred today because he has a new album that just came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to catch up with him because uh, we haven't seen each other in a while. So welcome to the podcast, Alfred. Thank you so much. I would never uh, miss out an opportunity to speak with you, especially when, you know, when you're not having the pressure of another drink coming up or indeed like all of our tangents, um, I would imagine coalesce in a place like this. So thank you so much for having me on. It's, yeah, it's nice to be able to, to just kind of um, know that you're holding court still, no matter mm -hmm. if things are slightly suspended. Yeah, it's it's funny. Whenever we have conversations, uh, like during coffee time, it, they're inevitably cut short. And I'm like, fuck, I wanted to ask so many more things. And we had such interesting things that were coming up. So, uh, uh, so Alfred, basically, the tradition on this podcast is to start by just asking people about their coffee habits, because uh, I interview all sorts of different people, but uh, I like to sort of uh, view them through that lens. So um, I'm familiar with your coffee habits, but can you tell yeah. us about what you've been drinking lately? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, I like most, I'm a little in suspended animation when it comes to, to my usual. Now, I, I don't fancy myself any type of barista. Um, I have quite a habit and quite a, quite a, a tongue for the thing. But um, at the end of the day, uh, I'm doing pour overs right now. I've been getting in heart coffee. Um, I'm still on the very dregs. It's now a very ancient bag of uh, GMB roast as well. Um, so go get them. Um, from way back in the day, which I will every once in a while dole out like it was some sort of aged marvel. But uh, generally speaking, I'm an espresso kid. Um, I like my I like my coffee sans any kind of interruption. I'm not much of one for for milk and those gestures. But um, that being said, I love the coffee traditions of the world. And so when I was wearing more of my musician's touring hat, I would always go out of my way for some sort of unique experience be it coffee and legs in Chile or, um, you know, civet cat coffee in Indonesia, or indeed the few times that I've been to Malaysia, um, I'll find sometimes variations of that same kind of brew and some of the yin, yin yang coffee that you find in Hong Kong. And anyways, the list goes on and on. I just love the kind of coffee traditions of the world. And so I'll do that. And so if that means that I'm drinking the stuff without purity, then I'm, I'm happy to try to see it through the lens of the local because I don't presume that I know best. I just like what I like. Awesome. That's that's cool that you're doing some like coffee anthropology in your travels. Uh, so you recently moved to the East Coast and I'm curious uh, what the big differences you've seen between here and there are, whether it's coffee or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I moved to Boston and uh, here in Boston, it's, it's a very academic tradition. So coffee um, specifically the coffee shop takes on a little bit more of that, like the, the people parking with their laptops. I mean, it happens plenty in LA. There was the remote, remote office kind of vibe, but it felt always like in LA that it was a little bit of a staring contest. People would be in most of the shops with a few exceptions, obviously some aren't really made for the thing. They don't have the plugs in every, every place, but like people were kind of there to be seen or to like get, get their socials. Um, either popping or to fulfill some sort of mandate for a certain number of posts every day, um, you know, be it for their food blog or whatnot. So on the East Coast, it does seem like people are are still concerned with much of the same, but then actually genuinely doing like academic work, people furiously writing their their theses, thesi. But in addition to that, there is a still performative aspect of, you know, somebody will drink a single cup of coffee seemingly at one of the 
like be it a George Howell or um, or some of the other shops and and just like milk that thing to death. I would assume they're coming back in for refills at like you know like the tiniest amount possible. Maybe even knowing someone behind the behind the counter. Um, also, uh, still like weirdly enough, um, we also have not in addition to Starbucks, we have other kind of similar international brands that fancy themselves something. And so that's I don't even dip into that world, but I just know it's here. Anyway, Boston's a trip. It's totally different. George Howell is a, like a little bit of an echo of home, but even that, like this, their playlists are different. Like mm. it's not, <laughs> it's subtle things that I wouldn't necessarily knock or like even comment about with your average cafe, but I just was shocked and surprised to hear as much pop music as I was or these kind of things that I wouldn't normally associate with indie coffee, you know? Are they listening to less D'Angelo? <laughs> if only. <laughs> no, I'm talking like Charlie XCX or something or... Oh, who knows? And, and but then that being said, my local, my like my normal is this place called Pavement, which isn't on the national scene, but has quite a few branches here in Boston. And uh, there are they do some roasting on their side, and it's it's pretty middle road Africans and you know some nice things, but not like trying to make some sort of dark roast or something to like appeal to to the Dunkin' Donuts of the world or whatever, which is also quite a bit here. Mm -hmm. um, but they're they're a little bit more college bound, and so they they play a little bit more interesting music. And I don't mean to conflate the thing so much. I mean taste is taste, but everything gets in that cup. You know, if you the things you're hearing, the things you're seeing, all that stuff's in the cup at some level. So I'm not immune. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I, in thinking of what I was going to talk to you about, I, I asked Charles what I should ask you, and he mentioned that you have at least thrown around the idea of making like a coffee album or a Absolutely. coffee origin album? Yeah, no, 100%. I would, I still, I'm still kind of doggedly pursuing the idea, but I, I feel like at this point, um, if I were to, because I just finished a record, right? So I'm like, I'm already thinking about what's next. And every time I get to this point, which has happened on a few occasions, I've had this coffee record in pocket now for a while. And both because of the concept, which I'll tell you in a second, um, requires a little bit of travel if I'm ready to do it really right. Um, but also I feel like if I were to put something forth of coffee too soon, it would taste too, too much of sadness. On the coffee wheel, I don't know where exactly sadness fits, if it's in between bitter and herbaceous. Um, it's something like that. And uh, I would worry that it would, it would show up in the salty, bitter range. Um, of tears, like uh, like water for chocolate, but for the baristas out there, um, everyone being a little bit <laughs> adrift. But um, yeah, so the coffee record, it was this concept where, you know, we associate certain regions, um, be it by altitude or geography between the Tropic of Capricorn and Tropic of Cancer with like great coffee. Um, one of the other things we can associate with all those regions is great music. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes uh, very indigenous, indigenously um, spiced very much. And sometimes by that, that kind of same um, caterwauling of culture that has produced what we think of as like modern coffee culture, like the whole fact we're in touch with the local producers and that you, know, you take all the kind of science and acumen to the kind of roasting level and onto the barista. There's very much the same thing happens in music culture, right? Where there's this, conundrum where you know problematic cultural mixing um, by colonization but has produced both taste and sounds that we can directly presume like we know for a fact that samba for instance samba out of brazil is the direct culmination of african peoples being brought over to brazil portuguese 
uh, courtly music traditions, and then modernity, you know, like technology, and much the same with coffee culture, right? Like an import from Africa, then find local, finds local ground and like unique varietals that are theirs. So I've always wanted to make a coffee record that takes uh, like a, a record about that aspect that really takes the local into consideration, but still with technology and kind of fed by this beautiful appetite we have for the consumable, you know. So I know it, we, yeah. uh, So in terms of like making it be about that when it's instrumental music, uh, are you just, is the plan to sort of like, you know, by osmosis, maybe taking some of these influences that are regional or um, how would you, how would you make it about that? I mean, the best thing to do would be to localize it. So rather than just kind of go along and pluck music traditions is to really play with people, um, mm. find the musicians in the area that, that maybe are coffee addled or maybe have something to do with, I would imagine no matter, no matter what we're talking about, if we're talking about Ethiopian musicians and the Ethiopian kind of scene and the kind of modern, um, Q, you know, Q, Q bop kind of stuff. Q, I don't want to, I can't, can't quite get my tongue to click right now to say that word, but that kind of Pan-African kind of house tradition that's going on right now, or, or be it Brazil and it's kind of previous traditions of bossa and, and samba, but then all the modern baile. I mean, like these same producers and people are all influenced by the kind of the food and the drink and coffee is very much part of that. And, and then we're talking like Indonesia and like their modern electronic scene. I don't know if you've heard that um, that gamelan group that uh, is like it's death metal gamelan like Gabber. Oh, no. yeah I'll, <laughs> I'll have to pass you the name of that that's really good but um, there's just so much to mine but yeah to, to always to localize it in a in a person rather than be a colonizing force for me to decide what's good or bad mm -hmm. I mean hey that's it's a time honored tradition sad to say but I don't think I have to keep that one going I'm trying to rally against those sort of things. But, well, that's, yeah. that's good of you. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to get into uh, what Wands uh, Won't Break, which is your new yes. album. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was watching this video of you, uh, and you were talking about Wonderment. And the gentleman that I interviewed right before you uh, a few days ago, uh, he was actually just, he said something so similar. He was saying mm -hmm. that I mean, he's a, a supplement maker, and he was talking about how his product uh, specifically worked by prolonging states of wonderment and yeah. you say that I was like man this is a theme uh, <laughs> and so he was particularly talking about it in terms of like learning and so um, his product like sort of stimulates uh, like long-term memory formation awesome. and so yeah. he was saying you know there's this feedback loop that keeps you engaged and learning and uh, so I was wondering uh, if you could talk about wonderment and how it affects your learning particularly yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm in the laboratory right now because teaching electronic music, which is not a, a very um, written or studied act, um, specifically electronic music being um, sound representation that doesn't always include resonant instruments, resonant bodies. So, um, yeah, it's it 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 kind of is a is a little bit of a juggle to to kind of keep people both engaged with their kind of sound space as as inventors of that space, you know, they're kind of defining it both by choreography and by performance. And then an audience who also equally has to go through those leaps and bounds. So wonderment specifically um, kind of nestled in, in exploration is, um, is so much a part of what it is to like do the thing. And then also to teach it, you kind of have to heighten people's awareness because all too often, especially with music education, you, you get a situation where it's very uh, about these kind of 
undeniable, but flat things that don't really exist. It's, it's kind of a, a lot like talking about language and not speaking it or writing it. I, I don't know how, how to exactly express that, but so much of music theory, for instance, is something that doesn't sit into the music. It's just a series of like parallel anagrams that somehow, somehow like spell out certain musical ideas, but then to actually perform the thing, especially again, electronic music, which includes so much more um, dimensions than our typical sound dimensions. You know, it isn't just amplitude or frequency, it's timbre and in a profound way and rhythm in ways that just don't get explored so often. So um, I'm really enjoying this, this whole thing of, of being into skill acquisition and a really crazy regard for my own practice. Um, I, I really like um, kind of plunderphonic ideas. And so a, a lot of times I'm using samples or I'm using kind of the gesture of sampling. And there's a, there's kind of an interesting nostalgia loop that can happen where you can directly time travel or like burrow deeply into someone's brain who might have a, a, like a slight recognition towards a, a refrain that they, you know, they've been carrying with them unbeknownst to them as like a sleeper agent of emotion and space. And so there's this thing where you, you I, I, I mean, as much as I'm playing music, I'm certainly trying to, I'm also playing kind of emotional states. And if you, if you start to know your audience, if you start to know the scene you're playing in front of, you can do terrible and wonderful things with that. <laughs> and of course, you know, if you push that button too much, it loses some of its effect. But if you, if you kind of figure out how to manipulate that a little bit, and, and by manipulate, I mean press. I don't mean, I don't mean to try to like, you know, all acts of art are subconscious or consciously trying to pry something from, from your audience. It's just if you determine them victim or collaborator is the real difference. And I'm much, 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 much more in the collaborator idea, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's powerful when it works and it's dastardly when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's this other thing too, and, and this is where wonder partially comes in, is that there's very much in the performance, you, you are pantomiming the emotions for the audience to kind of replicate. Um, and of course, you are, your, you are the audience for the audience and they are the audience for your performance. And, I'm on a stage typically, and I'm louder typically, so I'm maybe more the the thing. But in many regards, we're we're both kind of wondering at each other, and it's yeah, it's it's kind of a tricky bit um, to to define where any of this kind of begins or ends, I guess. But if we can all stay in awe, then that that idea of pantomime becomes it's kind of like the guidelines for which they can enjoy themselves. So the more wonder I can induce in myself, the more wonder that they can experience potentially. It isn't like a, an exact um, analogy, but, or it, it isn't, you know, it doesn't, it, the maths don't necessarily add up to being unity gain or even some, but really when it's good, like, yeah, the amount that I can be in the process of improvising and discovering gives the audience hopefully an incredible opportunity to do much of the same. So the more I can keep myself in that wondrous place and I can keep my ears innocent and I can, you know, genuinely encounter something rather than like a like a fake smile like we're really good at reading faces as as people generally speaking obviously there's some limitations to that and some some people have psychological limitations to that too but um generally speaking we're really good at recognizing faces even faster than we are to reacting to physical stimulus and all this stuff it's like our mind really grabs onto that stuff generally speaking and if i can you know display genuine feelings i think it really it activates something deep at least um at least it's been reflected back on me much the same. And when I've had profound musical um, audience experiences, when I've been in the audience for shows that really have turned me around, it's most often 
not because someone played a perfect lick or you know the the speakers were super loud it's because something genuinely emotional happened and whatever that definition is it's cool. interesting yeah. uh, can you think of a, an experience like that where you're in the audience yeah i mean i i have a background in jazz mm -hmm. so um very often in my younger self uh you know it'd be it'd be things like jam sessions and whatnot where um you're you're amongst people who have further traveled um these kind of these routes these kind of things where i don't I didn't understand as a young person exactly how to play jazz. I studied it later and I learned more, but as a, as a very young person, I'd be at these jam sessions and you'd just see somebody do something that was um, wondrous. You'd see someone do something that was like kind of a magic and oftentimes it would be peers. I mean, I would be um, at jam sessions with people like Terrace Martin or Kamasi Washington later and Thundercat. And as when they were, when it wasn't Thundercat, when it was Steve Bruner and when it was, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of names that are a little bit more familiar to us now, but they were all in the same jazz scene growing up. They were all in the same LA world stage um, kind of thing. And, and uh, so to be amongst these people and to be waiting my turn to play bass badly and watch these people do, do so well. But part of what I found so I would geek out about is that, you know, you have these people who are of tremendous skill, but they would still be discovering themselves. And so mm -hmm. to be there for the moment where they would come across a unique idea that they never encountered before seemingly, and you could see their, their posture change, their like, their state of being it would just like suddenly glowed, you know, positively radiated. And that was so profoundly, po you know, powerful. And especially compared to the earlier experiences of seeing rock bands or seeing, you know, electronic music was one of the things that called out to me about it was that all too often, especially in my younger days, the DJ was not the star. You wouldn't focus on the DJ because they would be boring. Mm -hmm. They were too busy trying to get the records to play nice with each other. So too often it was, you would be watching the people around you and their performative existence who, you know, they brought fun costumes and, and interesting dances and, you know, several hours in when you're all exhausted and kind of heat stroke victims, some, you know, really amazing things would start to occur. Um, and, you know, audiences catching wildfire amongst each other about some sort of energy, a drop or mm -hmm. yeah, that mystical experience. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, increasingly less mystical and more physiological, more psychological. And yet there's nothing, nothing not magic about it, nothing mm -hmm. less magic about it. It's just, I, I, it's hard for me to, um, to put it anywhere outside of our existence. It's hard for me to give, it, give credit to anything else than the person who's so magically doing. But yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. Um, so it, when I was listening to uh, What Wands Won't Break, I was the first thing that I took in was basically the sound design. And um, there's a lot of sort of like beautiful, dirty tone that's just uh, somehow connected with the rhythms so deeply. Mm -hmm. And uh, it made me think back to like, uh, I was like, you know, what are you up to musically? And you were telling me about this uh, sort of like squashing and uh, uh, this technique. Is that what turned into this album? Um, I don't. That? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because I've definitely been doggedly pursuing this idea. And for a while there, it was it was hard for me to exactly figure out what it was because I was using this technique of basically transient inflation. So any of you musicians out there, transients are like the kind of out of bounds parts of frequencies that typically if you heard the tail of a note, right, the ending of a thing, it's like the the transients that are still there from the derived from the power of the original note, right? They're kind of the echoes of, let's say, in less musical terms. Um, there are the parts in between, 
And so using oodles of transient inflation and just finding the places to which both sample sources and synths um, in all of their like trying to do so much sound design nowadays and just like pushing them beyond the brink to the point where they start to fold back in on themselves and kind of give way to like inner harmonies and like weird woofy things. You take a very simple, quiet little tick of a drum sound and you give it all the boosting in the universe basically. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, it's like, it's both a sound, like a tone, like a synth, like an organ. Uh, it has a plosive nature. It almost kind of can be like speaking. Um, and then at the same time, like when you start to have multiple instances of these different notes together, they, they do a lot of cross-talking and in what in the industry they call side-chaining at, at Essence, where they're all competing with each other for space. And so something loses out. And if you do it, I think artfully, you, you can get um, almost like these inner rhythms coming out, like you mentioned. And I, I enjoyed, you know, that's what this record is entirely about. It's like, let's lose the melody. Let's lose the encumberment that keeps the hot air balloon low. And so all that ballast overboard and you just have like rhythm in its kind of purest form, just like going for it. And that's the vibe. Nice. Yeah. Um, hearing you talk just now, it made me think of uh, like the sort of French spectral school of music. And I'm curious if you listen to any of that stuff, like uh, Tristan Mirai. I, I mean, I've, I've definitely listened to some Tristan uh, Mirai, but it's, I, it's funny though, cause I'm, I was both, I was hit by two things and it was one of them was the German, German tradition, like the Stockhausen kind of thing of like using mm -hmm. feedback loops and playing the feedback on mixers basically. So I was using a little bit of those techniques where you're basically, you know, like feeding, feeding and feeding and feeding the sound until you kind of, it, it kind of induces um, its own oscillation because of it kind of, you know, again, between Nyquist frequencies, which is that part of a sample frequency where you start to get weird falling apart sounds of uh, sample rates uh, especially when you get to a certain um, yeah you get to a certain like speed to which the frequency is beating along um, and then the other thing I'm really it was inspired by for this record less so than the kind of that French tradition um, would be also Trisha Rose's kind of seminal work Black Noise are you familiar with that one? Yeah. I would highly recommend it some of the statements in that book really shook me up um, yeah profoundly and uh, I owe a lot of that so like this record is very much in the red. It's very much overblown. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of my traditional music education told me that was wrong, you know? And uh, it took someone like Trisha Rose's book and people in my life to kind of turn me around otherwise and just, you know, sound to sound, we get to its outcomes in all different ways. And um, in some ways it's a, uh, <laughs> it's an induced kind of cultural imperative to keep things like closely contained and easily arraigned um, and and aligned in these kind of these neat and even fashions that speak to different very European traditions rather than like looking at well what is what does the sound itself want to do or what are we what's the best outcome for us so kind of trying to take the co colonization out of the sound um, really sh yeah really shook me up it's something I hadn't for all my years of doing music I had never really questioned like why are we so afraid of the red why are we so um, worried about being untowards when it's just sound outcomes, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Um, cool. So I, I think that uh, one of the things that we've bonded over most probably is our love of footwork. And I'm curious yeah. when you first came across footwork. Right. Um, it's, it's funny, kind of in the same way. Like, I think it must have hit me in like 2005 or 2006. Um, I had been playing in sh shows in Chicago for a while. 
Um, I had worked with this label called Hefty, which was based in Chicago, which was John Hughes's son. I forget his name, but it was his label. Telephone Tel Aviv were on that label. Um, Elliot Lip was on that label. Um, there were others. And uh, it was kind of this weird moment in boutique labels where the industry had been falling apart since the early aughts. And, um, you know, in, in many ways, the kind of the, the first torchbearers of the kind of independent scene were those blogs like Pitchfork and others who were willing to kind of speak to locality, but it's still for all of its dispersedness, people didn't necessarily mind the local thing. Like, I think, you know, house and techno in many regards are still are, are international phenomenons, but were once very localized music to places like Chicago and Detroit, New York, you know, the Paradise Garage. And there was these places that contained sound more profoundly. Um, and so in the early aughts, traveling around, you would hear whispers of these scenes, like being more go-go music in DC. And indeed, I think it or must have been around that same time I heard about DJ Sluggo and what was going on in Chicago. And at the time, the sound wasn't as psychedelic or explorative. It wasn't the DJ Rashad space juke kind of scene. It was very much ghetto tech. It was, it was you know, DJ Dion and, uh, you know, and others of those ilk, names that aren't probably familiar on the national scene, like maybe Rashad as an ambassador for the music was. But um, I played a show with, I found the flyer not too long ago, but I played a show with Sluggo in 2006 because I requested it. I was like, I was so enamored with the sound, this music that I just needed it in my life terribly. And the only way to get it at the time, because it was such like buried treasure, such secrets given, was to, to play with those people. And, and it was a really weird show. And it was an education in like local Chicago politics, let's say. Um, but so cool. And that really gave me the kind of gateway where I met Rashad, I met Spin. Um, I would go on to play shows with those same names and kind of start to be on the mailing list, start to be in the kind of like they would send tracks around and this was at a time where, especially in like 2009, 2008, it was like every week you'd get like a whole zip of like hundreds of tracks, it felt like. And it wasn't just, it was also like Dreamtime Continuum, that project between uh, Machine Drum and, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Oh no. Um, it was like a rave revisionism with juke rhythms. Um, and it was so amazing to hear it kind of kind of reinvented rather than just being like sped up house, like they kind of thought about it in Chicago, but to see these other imaginings and it, it made me both feel possible in the scene, but it kind of reinvigorated some of my interest. But yeah, I collect, I collect a lot of those early comps like Rat Poison 1, 2, and 3. And there's so many of these weird instances of just like locally traded. It's like what would have happened here in LA if like the Dream Team had never blown up and become Dr. Dre and NWA and stuff, you know? Do you know the Dream mm -hmm. Team? Are you familiar with that? No, no. So the dream team was like a weird, like Egyptian lover-esque kind of dance crew that Dr. Dre and others were part of. Um, Interesting. And it, you know, and it was one of those things where you could get like basically mixtapes of original rhythms, but also just like kind of dance stuff at like the Crenshaw Swap or like other places. Like it would just be a local, local scene, local music in the true most profound sense. Uh, rhythm that you know played to a certain thing and, and that that culture was still very strong in Chicago uh, you know still strong in Chicago if you look in the right places just like you know New Orleans Bounce or Jersey Club or you know like there's so many of these like localized rhythms that haven't been totally plucked and distended and made international see what's happening right now with Be More it feels like it's popping again it's like you know that song uh, Vibe by Cookie Kawaii 
um, is like totally blowing up on TikTok right now. And it's just, well, does that mean, is that the end of Beemore or is it just another chapter or something? Nice. Yeah. Uh, that also makes me think of like, you know, uh, like the Principe stuff and like, you know, you mentioned, I think, like the Qom, I can't say yeah, that, but like yeah, all these different uh, local iterations of the same sort of uh, general form. Uh, with So with footwork, it seems like there's such a focus on quantity and you know, you're talking about like these zips of uh, tracks and stuff. Does that sort of mesh with your work ethic or like how's your work ethic compared to that? Because, you know, they're so focused on just like banging out tracks and getting yeah. shit done. I mean, they're also focused on war dubs too. They're focused on this kind of concept of you make tracks that slay other tracks, that like mm -hmm. render other tracks like inert. And that, that's never been totally in my headspace. I've never been one for the battle dub. But um, that being said, there is something about the competition that does tend to increase the kind of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes for scenes, it does drag things down and you have crews that rock that rival other crews. and. That, that kind of ma mashing of, of jaws um, means that you just kind of lose something in the mix. Like, look what happened to the screw scene. Um, it kind of felt like it ate what was this, whatever was going on in Houston. Um, but at the same time, uh, I do think um, with, with the juke scene in particular, that wild creativity is spread to places like Japan and elsewhere where you see like an amazing scene in Osaka that's like producing incredible music and has gone on to like really influence an experimental wave of new electronic music that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the RP boos and others who maybe thought they were doing conventional music, but they really were making great unconventional things. Yeah. I know for myself, so it's like oftentimes I'll reflect the juke sentimentality in a much more emotional ways. Um, I really like DJ Meredith and our cake dog, our LA's cake dog and some of these people who really you know, it's like, you can tell it's juke, but it's taken way out of context. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. Especially, have you heard much Meredith? Are you familiar with DJ Meredith? Uh, only a little bit. I've yeah. definitely heard Cake Dog though. Yeah, yeah, cool. They, you know, there's, there's a lot of overlap. And, uh, but then equally, there's just, um, there's something to be said for, you know, you, you know the, true, the true shape of the thing, but when you start to see the way it can be taken out of, out of context, it's nice. Do you feel like if you were trying to do the sort of, uh, you know, uh, what were we calling it, war zone dub? Or just war dubs, yeah. War, war dubs. dubs. Um, do you feel like if you very sincerely tried to do that, that it would still just end up not sounding anything like that sort oh, of? Uh... Oh, my God. I mean, I, I, I DJed um, the, like, four-year anniversary of Juke Bounce work at, uh, when it was at Tokyo Beat still, right? The, that club, that, like, tiny ramen spot that would have, like, insane Juke nights. Um, the LA creation crew or whatever was like, they would routinely come out and this, this particular one, they had people flying from Chicago. So it was going to be really like the circle was going to be going pretty strong and they had me like headlining it, which is a bad move, but I was honored to be in the mix. <laughs> and I picked all the things that I thought were just like, oh, this is, this is the heavy stuff. And, you know, I would try to throw in some of my own too. And it, it was really, um, it was really cool to see both the circle really going off to certain tracks that maybe they'd never heard before because it was a little untraditional. Um, but also how, you know, there's still something so powerful about a refrain that you recognize when you know when that drop's coming, when you know the beats. And especially for something like that, where it's like, I'm in service of the dancers. Mm -hmm. And for Juke, those of you out there listening who maybe aren't familiar with Juke, right? Like those, of, those out there, who, who know electronic music, but maybe haven't dived in on the kind of faster varietals. Um, Juke's vigorous and Juke's really grounded in like 
a dancing tradition. Like if you're not moving to it, if you don't know those movements, it just doesn't make sense sometimes. Like the way the, where the syncopation is going and where the, the kind of changes are happening, it's very much based on, well, how long can you really keep up those moves for? Well, a surprising amount of time. And like, how much, mm-hmm. how much can you center this in the lower body and just totally neglect the upper body? Well, it's like a lot apparently. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to get a flavor for it, they should just look up some of these older videos of like battlegrounds where there's just fucking insane dancing going on. Like, I have, I don't know how anybody is that in shape. I I would get out of breath in two seconds. <laughs> totally. I mean, and part of it's the hyping of the music. It's very much, you know, you love the track and it's going off, and the crowd is with you, and you can do anything. It's a powerful mm-hmm. feeling. But yeah, no, I, I adore this stuff. And yeah, I, I have a hard time, generally speaking, putting myself, like twisting my my pretzel into those like louder shapes. But thankfully this new record goes there a little bit. And so I'm, I'm excited to express that part of myself maybe a little bit more. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I heard you say something in one of these videos about uh, what's the point of making music that's fun and easy. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this record, Utility by Barker. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. It's a it's an album based on uh, the hedonistic imperative, which is like this transhumanist uh, manifesto, which is straight <laughs> up my alley. And uh, the album is just so gorgeous. And uh, I never thought of creating music that's purely just trying to like provide pleasure for people. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you were talking about your your album where you're doing sort of narrative of like this South African uh, war, yeah. and. Uh, I'm curious if like that is ever something that you think about just trying to make music that is purely pleasurable versus uh, sort of full of more narrative meaning. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting you bring that up because I think this really circles back nicely to coffee. Um, I learned very early on in my coffee adventure that my taste, um, although resonating with some particular uh, you know, flavor providers, like the profiles that I would find in some cups in terms of the floral and the herbaceous, generally speaking, was frowned upon and maligned and laughed at because I took great pleasure in the kind of deeper experience. And then also I loved the fact that every cup was different. I mean, even from the same same lot, just the, the touch of the barista really changed the nature of the coffee, not necessarily always ruining it, just like bringing out different aspects and different times of day would have different feelings and different tastes. And, uh, you know, kind of in the same way, I discovered at a young age that my musical taste really differed like the buttons that other people were pushed for their pleasure center to be erupting you know the kind of sing-along pop song generally speaking the karaoke moment just doesn't really do it for me so um i think i would really do a botched job of making a record that was supposed to or maybe even making a song that was supposed to just give it easily um to me much of my musical much of my musical offerings are about kind of revealing and hiding giving and taking and I could imagine, you know, like the most like saccharine of dubstep where it's just like every moment's a drop, the roller coasters, like all twists and turns, no uh, inclines, just descent. And like, that seems like pretty pleasure forward kind of stuff. And yet even at its most sugary, even at its most like, you know, Skrillex analogies, um, without any pathos, it just doesn't come to ground without the bathos, without the things that kind of create tensions um, it just doesn't doesn't continue to work after minutes. It might work for a few seconds. You might get that exhilarating boost. But then, yeah, it, it's like we all have different degrees to which that button can be pushed before it just becomes inert. So, gotcha. Yeah, I, uh, 
but no, I, I, I mean, especially, I know you have a probably similar listening habits where you probably have things that people don't either know or they don't understand. And of course, there's plenty, probably plenty of others that you can't quite get into the headspace of. Um, at, yeah, at the end of, of the day, you just have to find your audience, right? Be it for taste or for sound. Mm -hmm. A lot of what I am interested in, like, is sort of like exploring the, I guess the the space of you know various rhythms, like the permutation space of rhythms, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of that it sort of means that you come across like, you know, to compare to flavors, like you're kind of coming across weird like bitter flavors that you don't want to completely get rid of, but you like it's kind of cool to be aware of every single possibility that's out there instead of just like only the juicy sweet ones. Well, and especially too, it's like all too often, if you only deal in the juicy and the sweet, then they, of course, they lose some of their power and potential unless you had something truly exceptional. And usually something's made exceptional by the nuanced extra additions. But sometimes you have something that's so funky and fermented, such a natural, let's say, <laughs> yeah. that it's just about how funky it is. It's not about how good it is in the conventional sense. It's just about how like it breaks rules and it becomes its own thing. Um, yeah, we're all, I mean, you know, in, in, in all senses, I think we all have to decide where our like comfort zone is, but if we're not constantly rallying against getting outside of that space, then it's like really we're, we shouldn't be artists. We should just be um, statues or something, statuary, like, you know, lawn, lawn gnomes or something. Cause uh, there isn't much else. Just you know, be pretty flat things, I guess. Um, so have you uh, heard of, oh yeah. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna ask you, have you heard of an artist named Goose? No, about like that. Yeah, G-O-O-O-O-O-S-E, I think. There's five O's, I think. I don't know exactly how to spell it, or how to say it, but yeah, out of Shanghai, I think. Cool, I'll scope I think it you'd out. like it, yeah, for sure. Nice. Um, so uh, I've been thinking about instruments a lot lately, mm. and uh, you know, I have a, a degree in guitar, and uh, I haven't played guitar much at all since graduating, uh, and it's like I, I go around saying audacious things like guitar is a bad instrument and um, it seems like you have sort of like a pick and choose like you uh, aren't identifying yourself as like an instrumentalist in any way like you have a bass clarinet here you have a guitar here you have the little accordion here um, but then maybe you identify more as like a modular instrumentalist um, mm -hmm. do you feel like uh, conventional instruments are on the way out or what do you think sort of like the future of conventional instruments is. I might have agreed with that sentiment more before I got to Berkeley College of Music um, because the place is so awash in traditional instruments and like we're talking banjos we're talking like harps and sitars and instruments that beyond the fact that they're maybe a little more novel to our like western palette of sounds or you know or novel within the western palette they have specific like literature let's say like specific works that they have to reckon with or else they're not even the instrument necessarily like if you sit with the sitar and you're not playing ragas, well, it's like perfectly fine, I think. But I, most listeners out there, most people witnessing the instrument would be expecting that first and foremost. And so you have to really break convention, essentially, to get out of form. And there's so many people per, like pursuing that those knowledge bases here that leads me to believe, well, that's always, it's like part of our DNA and how we regard music is as something that sits in these like finite forms. And that definition hasn't been expanded in, in perhaps too long. I mean, with the exception of electronics, like if you look at the modern instruments of the orchestra, modern instruments of bands, like something like the saxophone, which in its current incarnation is not so much more than a hundred years old, right? Like something of that sort. 
Um, that's relatively short, or even the piano is only 250 years old or so. They just, they're strange forms for us to regard them as being so timeless and yet so, so recent, but also so little evolved um, to correct for like temperament or for timbre, you know, different peculiarities of the instrument space. Um, but that being said, modular is, is not, is not similar in terms of instrumentation. Like very, very rarely do you see someone playing modular in a way that could be performed like a traditional instrument. You can't really read literature, right? You can't really play the, the, the greatest hits of modular. You just have to play the instrument as it wants to be played. And by playing it, I mean, just kind of like sit there and try to tame it. Um, I'm rallying against that a little bit and like looking for more of the performative avenues, which are not many. Um, there's a few more things coming to market that are increasing those chances, but still so much has to be pre-composed that it's it's like a system, not an not an instrument, let's say. And yeah, but I am amazed by the number of number of people who seem to be willing to, or even just the kind of the kind of strain of electronics where it's like you have someone DJing, um, and then on top of it, they're playing like a trombone, let's say, not to pick on anyone in particular, but you just have this kind of thing where people are, you know, like playing a lead line over excessively detailed tracks. It's like, what is what's that? What's that thing? Or just playing like a single drum. Well, like the whole cacophony of a computer is like whirling away and you just have somebody like banging on a cymbal. I mean, it's, it can make for interesting performative possibilities, I think, but rarely does that, would that be called like music in any kind of traditional sense of performing, you know? Um, and yet this is the kind of the one man show that we're in right now. It's more calliope than it is, um, you know, instrument, but or like, you know, kind of like defined performable instrument space, but uh yeah the the organ grinder is strong right now let's say in the musical tradition of things but at the same time people are still pursuing instruments and i'm increasingly um in awe of the those who find the in-betweens you know find new ways of plucking sounds from things and um i you know there's like a certain strain of guitar that's going around where it's more more like tap guitar and less time um you see is it ichmo ichmo uh this korean player i believe Maybe it's Japanese, but he's a phenomenal performer oh, yeah. player. I know exactly and, what you're talking about with all the weird like uh, tunes and strings to different words. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of that. There's a lot like of that. The and there's just, like, totally, just like really interesting kind of. But then at the same time, like we'll play pretty conventional sweet music, and mm -hmm. sure it'll be in odd time signatures, and sure it'll be in weird tunings, but like kind of making it norm core, norm weird core. I don't know. There's some weird spot to it, but. Um, I'm not against it. I just, I'm in awe of the kind of the amount of listening that we do and how so little of it's understood how the people are getting to those sound outcomes, right? Totally. I mean, for better, for worse, like, you know, but the average, you know, you know, the number of hands on the average album these days, like the number of people who have gone into making a pop record or something, it's like such like a crazy, like the cast of thousands in the background playing their like bit roles it's amazing uh can you talk about what role maxim sp has played in your life oh sure um early on so I, I have a pretty bad dyslexia and that's kept some aspects of programming pretty far at bay um, like we're talking pd we're talking like those kind of like heavier lifting languages um, in terms of computer uh enhanced music computer perform music so I just really regarded that stuff as to be off limits. And music always made more sense than language for me anyways. So, and, and math as well. And music was some, something else. It lived somewhere else than those things. And so when, whenever I've heard people 
make the thing where it's like, no, music's Apollonian, music's math. I always just like kind of, it doesn't make sense to me because music's never been math. Music's always been this Dionysian, like feelingful thing. Mm. Anyways, um, with the coding stuff, I couldn't get into like the, just the pure lines of code, but with something like Maximus P where there's like a graphic GUI to it, you know, it's mm -hmm. like sometimes sure there's lots of numbers involved still, but you have these object-based programming and it gave me a little bit of light. It gave me a little in, but I still knew that I would never be good at it without like purpose or reason. Um, not the program reason, but just the reason to be reasonable. <laughs> um, and that, that purpose came in the form of the mono. I encountered this instrument in 2003. This guy, Brian Crabtree, was um, developing it uh, down in San Diego. And I played a show at his university. And uh, it blew my mind. And it was all done in Max. And such an early form of Max, it must have been Max 4 or something. like you know. Uh, and I think this is before Millipocket was down there. Um, but maybe it was around the same time. Maybe that's the reason why it was in Max. Maybe because they were down there. And, the whole you know the whole thing was meant to be but the monom is like an anonymous grid of buttons that you can make do whatever you want to do and and one of the genius parts of the instrument is not only the instrument itself is kind of like anonymous grid but also truly like the program the initial program written for them for the monom was this thing called mlr which is entirely in max and it just is a shining light of what you can do with minimal object and maximum effect like mm -hmm. it it's still works with samples in a way unlike almost any other system unless they're directly imitating MLR and they're really trying to, to do it. And even then it's like the efficiency that, that the Crabtree was able to get, Brian was able to get out of that thing was insane out of that space. And, and you know, it's a big, a big, um, it owes a lot to Max and how vigorous it can be. I, I love too the fact that Max very openly asks you to sample it, asks you to poach from it. Like, there's example files of plenty that kind of has almost anything you want to do in the program. And they encourage you to like, take what you need from those examples, use them in your own processes and just like figure out how to get to point B from point A. And you don't, it doesn't have to always be original creation. It doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel. Um, and then later, um, as I've gotten more into Ableton, now I teach Ableton here at school partially and uh, Max for Live, it's since cycling is now owned by Ableton. It's, uh, it feels like they're very nestled like Russian dolls within each other. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's kind of incredible just the, the possibilities and, and how little has still been done considering. So I, I'm coming at it much more fresh faced than I was before and feeling, even though I, I am really interested in Bitwig, I'm interested in other programs too and other kind of spaces, but Max for Live is like, that raw creativity and I'm still able to do all these kind of same monomous gestures all these years later and all the cleverness that it is. And it feels constantly renewed. I, I don't know if they've done that much in the space to make it that revitalized. Some things remain kind of static, but it's still such an inventive space. I know you have quite a bit of experience also trying to crack that nut. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten any conclusions recently that's felt? Well, I've just sort of dove in back into, dive, dive back into uh, Maximus P as sort of a way to like try to get myself to learn Python. Uh, nice. You know, like, like you said, you know, having the straight code is very difficult for musical minds like ours. And so um, I feel like, yeah, just getting back into that. And I have a very homegrown sort of technique of just like random number generators that I try mm. to filter this way or that way and use like uh, coal lists to, you know, like be scales or uh, sort of durational uh, yeah. profiles. 
Yeah, um, I don't know, I, I still need to put a lot more work into it. It's, it's kind of paralyzing to have such a blank slate, so. You, you may want to take a look at the work of um, a similar Monum collaborator, uh, Matthew Davidson, who um, has is a teacher actually at Berkeley as well, but I know he's been working on all kinds of interesting random generators, number generators, uh, specifically in kind of formation of tracker and kind of other similar like kind of gestures. So something to look at maybe. Cool, Matthew Davidson. Yeah. Matthew Davidson, yeah. He, he was kind of one of the innovative minds behind the ARC controller. Um, if you're familiar with that, it's still made by Monome, but a lot of the coding and ideas came from Matthew Davidson, from what I understand. I think maybe I saw, is that like where uh, they have like little rhythm genera generator dials and stuff? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Can do that. Can do that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, cool. maybe enjoy. But, um, and then, you know, to put things back into, uh, into coffee shapes, because we can do this, it's possible. <laughs> um, I do feel like there is such a revolution happening in the flavor of coffee, but generally speaking, the um, kind of creativity seems a little lower. Maybe I'm just outside of the circle, but I'm waiting for those people to kind of shake things up and get things to be more like, so one of the earlier memories of like fine coffee culture that took me out of my sorts and really showed me some of that creativity was like the back bar at Intelli Venice. Mm -hmm. where every week there would be someone holding court trying something new and it was kind of you know gimmicky sometimes but all too often you would just see someone reckoning with the form and like changing ideas in the same way that you're kind of talking about music about randomness and like generating different outcomes I just feel like there's such room for possibility like that but maybe there's just not the theater maybe there's not the stage for coffee to do the same thing since it's all like I mean obviously make or break right now but just seems like when you tear down the kind of given structure of like the work, the workerly fill up on caffeine before you like try to consume capitalism for that day. Wouldn't it be nice if we could kind of reinject the artful and some yeah. of the chaos and creativity back into that? Man, so I do miss it? those days. Yeah, it was just special. <laughs> cool. Yeah, maybe well, maybe impossible. I don't know. I, I feel like it's hard to get people to you know, buy all that stuff like I, when i did that i was making like a, a green apple mocha and you know like single origin red eyes and all this nonsense so um i think that's not appealing to your average person i mean i'll tell you what like it, it showed me a world outside of the kind of given confines and that that sense of wonder that you instilled in me yeah it gave me a lifelong bug so cool. yeah i appreciate that i don't know if i was brave enough to try the apple mocha it doesn't seem like me but I bet you I tried one of those. Yeah, I mean, that red eye sounds delish right now, especially as I like nurse the same bag for the max amount of time dosing myself out as small as possible so I can like just get through. Not as fun, not as fun. Thinking back, like it definitely couldn't have been as good as I uh, you know, wanted it to be, but uh, I don't know, it was, those are cool days and mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure how much more time you have. Uh, we're getting up on yeah. an hour here. But um, yeah. I, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about low-end theory and as a mm -hmm. sort of bridge to that, um, if you could talk a little bit about uh, Roz G and mm -hmm. his impact that he's had on you and uh, just some memories of Roz. Yeah, for sure. So I knew Roz prior to low-end theory. Um, low-end theory, those of you who may not know, low-end theory is a was a Seminole Club in LA at the airliner in, in Lincoln Heights. 
If any of you know the airliner, I am so sorry. It is a dive bar, it is a dump. Um, now reinvented to be some sort of cocktail bar as these things happen, gentrification happened fast. But while Lowen Theory was holding court there every Wednesday, um, it was like the a center of the sound universe, let's say. I mean, I'm proud to say I was part of it in an ancillary fashion. I wasn't one of the residents. I wasn't there on the weekly, but every time I was in LA and able on a Wednesday, I would go and hear Lord knows what. I mean, you know, plenty of fancy pants people came through in the best way, like people like Erica Badu and Tom York and others would regularly come and DJ when they were in town. But also um, was the first Odd Future show happened there, I guess, you know, the first one of the whole cast of characters. Uh, with riots afoot and plenty of Flying Lotus performances and Kamasi Washington, Thundercat, and some of those same LA people I mentioned, but plenty, plenty others. And for beat music, for the instrumental hip hop, it was the center of the universe and so thrilling for it and so much underground hip hop and so much underground rock and, and otherwise. So really a seminal sound place. There was a lot of competition. If you were there playing and you didn't really play the weirdest, most head nod stuff, people wouldn't react the same way. You wouldn't be necessarily invited back, let's, let's say. And so mm -hmm. it was a laboratory of like how far you could push the beat within the beat, you know, how long it was before the snare would crack after the kick so that you would have that extra, extra dose of head, head nod. <laughs> and one of, the king, one of the kings of that scene, one of the, like the quiet kings was Ross G. So before Loan, there was this club called Sketchbook, which would happen at the Little Temple um, or now called, uh, oh gosh, it's right there. Um, I haven't lived in town in a minute, but I assume it's all, you know, hunkered down and closed like all the rest, but Little Temple was on Alvarado. So um, yeah, Alvarado and Santa Monica. Anyways, that club, which had a Moroccan theme vaguely, had a small DJ room. And so in like 2005, 2004, whatever, Sketchbook was like a monthly or a weekly hosted by DJ Kutma and Sacred and Tom Take and some others. But Ross would be a regular fixture there too and his young self. So um, those of you who also may not know Ross G was like quite an incredible figure in LA past last year, tragically. And, um, but yeah, it was such a fixture because he would just ride public transport. Like you would, I would regularly like encounter dude in the city just like waiting for a bus and I might if I had the time I'd pick him up and give him a ride to you know maybe be uh, his job at Amoeba or like X Y and Z different places uh, later at Pubas um, and just would find um, find time to go get Palm's um, Ethiopian food have you ever been to to that particular branch it's one of the best Ethiopian places in town and it's not on Fairfax no, I, I only go to Rahel's whenever I uh, get Ethiopian Okay, of course. That makes, I'm not, that I'm makes not sense. very versed. Rahel's is awesome, and the vegan stuff there is amazing, and some of the gluten-free and Jira is incredible. Um, but yeah, Palms was a really special spot as well, and they had the best shiro stew, and Ross would go on at length about it. But he was devout. Ross was devout. Um, and I don't want to speak too much about his religion without him being here, but he brought certain airs with him that was kind of rare, for uh, the kind of excessive hedonist part of LA electronic music. Um, he bought some, you know, some, some like groundedness that was outside of um, some of the pettinesses of the LA scene. So that was probably a secret ingredient of why Low End Theory lasted so long and why um, the beats kind of had so much more 
to it than just, you know, like the kind of terror out trap and dubstep and all these other genres that beats have kind of outlasted, mm -hmm. continue to go because there's something spiritual to it. Just to circle back to that word that you used earlier, there's something really profound. And uh, he brought oodles of that. And then one of the other things about him that directly impacted me and this record, I give him credit for helping in make this record possible. As I mentioned that person, Trisha Rose, before. Mm -hmm. um, and I was brought to Trisha Rose's work because of Ross. Ross was um, very much into the Pan-African People's Orchestra and the work of uh, Sun Ra, as, um, as those of you who know that he was like a strict follower of many things, uh, veganism and, um, and yeah, the work of Sun Ra somehow played a spiritual role in, in their life. And part of that was that when Ross would come up and take a stage, especially something like low end, which would have excessive amounts of, of low end as the, the name would imply, um, he would turn everything up to its maximum. He would go beyond midnight on all the faders um, and just immediately upon the first press of a button, people would just be falling over at the bass and blowing out speakers and sound guys did not like Ross's way about him, but he got the effect out of the sound that he needed to have his music produced properly. And I don't think I always respected that, but in hindsight, it was such a revolutionary idea that the sound itself deserves. And Ross really brought that to the forefront. And it took me, yeah, it took me a long time to understand that properly, I feel like. And sadly, I haven't been able to thank him for his contribution to my life directly, but we had lots of happy times. And uh, low end, um, it finished a little while ago. Um, it was definitely its time, it outlasted you think about like classic club nights, the Hacienda in, in Manchester, um, uh, what is it, uh, 54, Studio 54 in New York, um, Plastic People. I could kind of go on and on about these different club nights and Low End Theory went for 12 years. There's so wow. little that has an international reputation that goes on for so long. And of course, in the beginning, it was just like Ross, me and like five other people but very quickly when the word got out in, a, in LA, you started seeing crowds come and it became like really like a generation of, of LA and elsewise people who would, you know, make their pilgrimage to low end at some point in their listening. And it's incredible to think in hindsight. And yeah, Ross again was such a part of that. And this one. Yeah, but I'm <laughs> happy to try to get some of those sounds on my record and, and little parts, little ways. Nice. Well, Thanks for talking about Roz. That's a, you know, it's endearing to hear all the, the old stories. I didn't realize that uh, Lowen went on that long. Twelve years is fucking nuts. Yeah, it's really nuts, and especially when you have like the kind of dude who was sweeping the floors to like get in when they were like seventeen. You know, lie about their age was like would be playing the stage in five years, and then five years after that, when they were like on you know on Brain Feeder or on these other like labels and like you know touring the world would come back in and like, you know, do a set. It was just like, it was that place. It was just this weird breeding ground for a kind of an attitude more than a sound because it really wasn't about like a certain BPM. It was just like, how far can you push? How far can you melt a face or whatever? And so you would, that's all the juke guys that would come to LA, they would play there. All the heavy bass guys would come there. That's when, you know, like when Dub Club was a little bit, was a little bit earlier in its inception, you would still have dub people playing, you know, low end theory. It was just like, and it was an open framework for experimentation that really is unrivaled. I've never experienced anything quite like it. I've seen a lot of imitators though. I mean, I see a lot of people who take that as the blueprint, but they don't have as wide ears almost ever. <laughs> <laughs> My cat is being, it's basically a baby, yeah.
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, is there anything else you want to talk about, or do you want to end on that? I mean, that's that's a heavy note to end on. I just I just wanted to get your view on what LA, how LA is doing. I mean, I'm not there, and so I get these reports from very like strategic people in my life, but I'm not I'm not hearing other viewpoints. And so, just if you wouldn't mind quickly just giving me a little rundown on oh yeah, of course the feeling is yeah. Well, um, I guess on Friday uh, we've entered phase one and a half of reopening, and so I think that overall there's been like a good job of uh, flattening the curve. And so, um, I mean, it seems like, you know, everybody's wearing masks, that's basically the vibe and like, everybody's sort of like keeping their distance. But at the same time, like I have neighbors that, you know, I've never seen make one effort to social distance or anything like that. And so, um, I don't know, I think overall, everybody seems to be very respectful of uh, what we need to do. And um, I think that people are ready to get back into it, but uh, just, you know, being careful and taking all the precautions and stuff. But I don't know, at the same I mean, time, like, uh, there's been a lot of like, like for me personally, I feel like being stuck here has been a, a creative boon for me. So um, yeah, I, that's my take on what I've seen so far, but I've, I've been cooped up in my apartment, so. Understood. I mean, I worry about the people who, you know, that they missed out on a few months of, of wages and they missed out on a few months of, you know, the kind of persistent trauma that can happen when you're a little bit in suspended animation, whereas you're used to like running at full speed, kind of without a goal in mind, but you're just that that's the speed of the universe to kind of suddenly stopped is, is a lot to like renew. And I, I do think these kind of staged reopenings seem like the only way to make sense and to kind of get things, you know, I don't know what normal is going to feel like for a long time, but I do know that kind of having some sort of headspace or just kind of having some faith that people are like smart people are thinking about it, which doesn't seem totally the case, but you know, <laughs> Massachusetts seems a lot very impacted in certain cities, Boston a little less so. I'm curious if we can ever get back to uh, to full speed here without some of the wheels falling off or without, you know, some drastic setbacks. setbacks. But it heartens me to hear that things are getting somewhat back to somewhere for you. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, like the beaches are opening again. I guess you aren't allowed to sunbathe though, but you're allowed to go to the beach for exercise or something like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I feel like things are coming around and maybe prematurely, but um, I'm no uh, virology expert or anything, so. Yeah, I you know, I think um, trust your gut. I look forward to having more of these kind of conversations in the future, so keep yourself healthy and and well, please. Yes. you too thanks cool. well i guess <laughs> we'll end there um i'll talk to you later alfred please thank here. you so much it was fun let me know when it goes live i'd be really curious of course we'll do all right, all right. bye john okay. thanks adios <laughs>